You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. He who hung the earth is hanging. He who fixed the heavens in place has been fixed in place. He who laid the foundations of the universe has been laid on a tree. The master has been profaned and God has been murdered. For when people did not tremble, the earth shook. When people did not fear, the heavens were afraid. When people did not lament, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High gave voice. St. Miletus, 190 AD. You and I find ourselves in a long lineage of Christ followers. And we come together during this holy week to remind ourselves that this is literally a turning point of human history. Christ hung on a tree. His bloody and brutal death hangs over everything. Every nation and people and culture was forever changed by the atoning work of Jesus. So we gather tonight to gaze and consider the most wondrous moment when God married together his justice and his love. You see, friends, Good Friday is this sober, bold declaration from God that Jesus suffered infinite wrath with no amount of mercy so that we could have infinite mercy with no amount of wrath. That's an exchange worth living for. Easter week is Holy Week. It's the most sacred week for us Christians. This is our week where we stop and pause and meditate. This is the anniversary of the events that determine our eternity. So I just want to walk through the Good Friday story with you in a couple different acts. And you'll see these come together. None of this, for a lot of us, will be new terrain, but it's good for us to remember. Remember and gaze upon the cross and consider what it cost Jesus. Good Friday was an awful day for Jesus. He was tried and he was actually declared innocent, but condemned anyway. He was whipped almost to death and then he was led to his crucifixion. A death that was professionally devised to inflict maximum torment and humiliation. That Thursday night, Jesus didn't sleep before his crucifixion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in turmoil from the spiritual and psychological depression that was awaiting him as he thought about and considered the excruciating cross in front of him and also bearing the sins of the world. Imagine that on your shoulders. Early Friday morning, he was whipped raw and bloody with a cat of nine tails that was perfectly designed to rip flesh from one's body. It wasn't yet even 9 p.m. and the soldiers were prodding him along to his crucifixion. Typically, the condemned prisoner was taken on the longest possible route through the city so everyone could see, and this individual would be made a spectacle of. 
His crimes were written on a board that were likely hung around his neck as he was paraded through the city for people to gawk at. And when they would arrive at the cross, they would nail the sign over his head so that every passerby could read. And think about this for a second too. This cross that Jesus was to carry, wood was altogether expensive and a luxurious commodity, so it was likely a used cross, a cross that already had bloody stains upon it from previous crucifixions. Your Lord had a used cross that he took to Calvary. Jesus collapsed under the weight of the cross as he was on his way to Calvary. The soldiers knew there was no point beating him more. They'd already beaten him senseless this, that morning, so they drafted a pedestrian along the way, an innocent bystander. Roman soldiers who occupied the land of Israel at any moment were allowed to tap someone on the shoulder with their spear, and that person would become a temporary slave and have to do whatever the soldiers wanted. Their choice in that moment turned out to be a tourist from North Africa by the name of Simon. He was probably in Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to see the holy city, and little did he know, he never could have imagined, that it would have led to a humiliating moment of having to carry a cross for a criminal. This death march of Jesus continued on and reached a place called Golgotha. Outside the city wall where local crucifixions were held, Golgotha meaning skull because the city where Jesus was crucified had a semblance to what a, craw, a, a human skull would look like. It was also a place that could easily be seen throughout the entire city or to people entering into Jerusalem. Rome was making a very intentional decision of wanting to send a message, don't mess with us or this is where you end up. The cross was a symbol of fear and meant to instill that. And I shudder to think about what came next. Jesus was laid on the cross, his arms bent out, and they drove spikes through the base of his hands. Imagine that pain. They bent his legs and nailed his feet to vertical wood. Then the soldiers raised the cross and dropped it into a hole in the ground so it would stand up straight. Imagine the agony, the pain, hanging by na nails, withering to alleviate the agony, rubbing his raw, bloody back against a splintered, rugged cross, fighting and gasping for every breath, bleeding. There was a group of Jerusalem women who would regularly often, um, as history tells us, gather at crucifixions and out of a sign of mercy, they would bring extra strong wine, hoping to give the victims of crucifixion some dulling of their pain. But Jesus altogether declined. Instead, he chose to take the agony and the crucifixion in full force. There was to be no dilution for him. So the pain is present, and Jesus then moves on into the insults to add to his pain. Those nearby mocked and insulted him. The soldiers divided up his personal clothes as spoils for just another day's work. 
And then the soldiers would sit down and get all together comfortable and just wait for the inevitable. Often this would take hours, maybe even sometimes days. Imagine how desensitized you would have to be to human suffering, to brutality, to pain, to sit there and just count the minutes and watch that day after day of humiliating deaths. Golgotha was along a busy road, as I mentioned, and with many passerbys, the cross was low enough. We often think of the cross as being high up in the air where people would have to look up at Jesus, but that's not the case. It was much closer to eye level. So as people walked by, they would laugh and they would mock him. They would laugh at him. And they would say such things as, if you're really the son of God, why don't you get off that cross? Why don't you do something about it? If you're really the son of God, shouldn't you be able to free yourself? The religious leaders who were behind Jesus' crucifixion even came to see for themselves. They taunted him and they asked why God won't help you. Even one of the criminals who was being crucified by Jesus decided to get in on the actions and verbally attacked and insulted Jesus, an innocent man. And Jesus did not defend himself. And on this day, on Good Friday, on Calvary, God did not speak on behalf of his son either. In the moment, in the circumstance, it had to look like the critics were actually right. Cynics today often have that same posture toward God. God, why don't you perform a miracle? God, are, are you too impotent? God, do you honestly even care? Have you even had those moments? Maybe you've even had those moments in the last couple of weeks. It's such a temptation for our hearts to drift to a place where we often wonder, God, where are you? But friends, if there's one thing we see in the cross, the cross is this incredibly loud and bold declaration that this is the greatest act of love in human history. If you ever want to know where God is, God was hanging on a cross for you. That's how much he cares. And this act of love shouts directly and deeply into the lives of everyone who is a child of God. This, the cross, is the heart of God on full display. But yet in that moment, Jesus didn't just suffer pain and insults. He also suffered loneliness. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. and would die approximately around 3 p.m. Just imagine how lonely those six hours would be. Honestly, maybe the loneliest hours of his life. The most awful moment of Jesus' crucifixion came when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthin. Those words are in Jesus' native tongue of Aramaic, and they mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could you imagine what Jesus was feeling? Not just the excruciating physical pain, but the loneliness and separation, that sin, bearing the sins of the world, that was setting upon his shoulders and his relationship with his father. But did, but did God, did God forsake Jesus in this most awful moment? I don't think he did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness 
of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians is giving us an insight. He's giving us a perspective of what all was truly happening on Good Friday. Not just the pain, not just the insults, but the altogether sacred and significant and eternity-shaping transaction that was taking place on the cross for eternity. For us, 2,000 years later, far removed from Jerusalem, that is what was going on on Calvary. Jesus was stained with human sin. He never had personally even experienced sin his entire life. Can you imagine how overwhelming it is to have the weight of all sins put upon you when you've never experienced sin before? God dumped on him in concentration the sum total of every murder and every lust and every envy and every sexual perversion and every theft and every act of racism and every injustice against the poor and every sin of every person from every generation and every sinful thought we've ever had, every heinous offense we've ever done, every wicked act we've ever participated in, every foolish fantasy we've ever entertained, every petty grudge we've ever nursed every sin that is in rebellion to God, the maker of the universe. That's what was going on on Calvary. Jesus became the most grotesque, the most ugly, the most hideous thing in the history of all creation. More ugly than abortion or a Holocaust camp or anything that you could ever conjure up in your imagination. And this, folks, is the great exchange. Jesus became ugly and we actually became beautiful. This is called the doctrine of imputation. Imputed to Jesus was all of your sin, all of the things that you think you can never bring into the light, all of the things that you're trying to achieve your way out of, perform your way out of, run from, all of those things, all those things that you still won't let go at the cross. Jesus died for him in that moment. And then, not only that, he gave you the righteousness of God. You got the righteousness of God. You got the record of Jesus. So that now when God the Father looks upon you, when he looks at your name, when he looks at your record, when he looks at you, he says, my child. He says, righteous. He says, pure. He sees, lovely. He says, beautiful. But why then? Why do we meditate and consider on the cross? Well, here's the thing. Until we understand the significance of the cross and what happened, we can't actually even fully appreciate it. John Stott says this. He says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. You're like, well, I wasn't at Calvary. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. Once again, Jesus was doing a work that was much bigger than just that day and just that momentary death. Jesus was coming to right every wrong and to make atonement for the brokenness, for the rebellion of this world. Jesus had never sinned and he was made sin for us. The father loved his son and that's why he was willing to forsake him. He loved his son because he knew only his son could pay for our sin. So because Jesus was forsaken, you and I are accepted. 
Now, we might even be able to experience small bits of this in our life. In the smallest comparison, we have sometimes tasted a little bit of Jesus' horror. We have felt the prick and the pain and the consequences of sin. We maybe at times have even felt abandoned by God. We have felt overwhelmed by our sin, or sometimes we feel crushed by the consequences of our sin. We can feel desperately alone or altogether hopeless. And it can feel like God has abandoned us. But the good news of Calvary, the good news of the gospel is that God never gave up on Jesus and he never gives up on us. Paul actually tells us on Calvary, on Good Friday, what was also happening there. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us. So he's demonstrating love for you and me that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible, isn't it, church? While you were still sinner, not once you got your life cleaned up, not once you started acting better, not when you had a, a bunch of days in a row without sinning, but Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. And that's how he demonstrates his love for us. You see, friends, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's a great exchange, isn't it? We move into Jesus' death. And when Matthew reported Jesus' dead, death, he didn't really emotionalize it. As you read through the Gospel of Matthew, it's not very sensational. He simply explained, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John, who was the only gospel writer who was an eyewitness at Calvary, he tells us exactly what Jesus cried out loud. And we sung it just a minute ago. Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's finished. And Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I often wonder in that moment, Jesus didn't die just a literal death, but also a spiritual one of just a broken heart. In the end, though, it was Jesus who chose the moment he was to die. He voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice for human sin. You know, sometimes there's this notion that Jesus was forced into this against his will, that he was a helpless victim. But Jesus actually aspired toward the cross. He knew that this was his moment to come. He repeatedly references this hour as his crowning achievement in his redemptive work of coming to this world. This is our king. This is our conqueror. This is the one who defeats death on our behalf. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, there was a victory in his voice. You have to hear this victory like a marathon runner breaking through the tape at a finish line, exhausted and weak and totally drained, but a sense of, I've made it. I've completed my task. I finished what I set out to do. I ran the race that I was supposed to run. It is finished. Now, bear with me in the grammar here for a second of the Greek, but it's spoken in the indicative. And the indicative is certainty. Had there been any question about it, he might have used the subjunctive when writing about it. The subjunctive is much more of, it, it may be finished, it, it, it might be finished, but that's not how it's written. It's written in a, a shout of triumph. It's written with certitude. It is finished. 
Not only that, but the passive voice indicates that he had been acted upon with some great intention and some great force. He doesn't say, I finished it, putting the mighty deed out there. He says, it is finished. This is part of the triune plan of God since the moment of the fall. They would set into motion redemptive history. Almost as if all the Old Testament was a foreshadowing. It was a leading up. It was a building up to this climactic moment. There's a sense in which the whole Old Testament was written as a deed, as a down payment, almost as a waiting note to be signed. Since outside the gates of Eden, a sin and failure and guilt casted shadow and eclipsed the human race through patriarchs and kings and prophets, we knew that the blood of animals wouldn't suffice. So when Jesus says it is finished, he wants us to look at those 39 books that precede the New Testament. And right across them, Jesus, Messiah, it's finished. See, friends, Christ hung on a tree so that you and I could be free. The Bible says that Jesus was born to save his people from their sins, that he came to seek and save the lost. He was the suffering Savior, not the Savior you would expect, but the Savior that we needed. He was the sacrificial lamb. He's the only way to God. He is our salvation, and Jesus alone is eternal life. He left heaven to do this. He set out to take the most significant mission in universe history, and he became human to do this. He was born in Bethlehem to do this. He suffered and died to save sinners like us. He gave up everything. And at that final moment, all of heaven, just imagine all of heaven, had to be watching with a sense of awe as the Son of God himself died. And just this rejoice, he did it, he completed it, he finished it. Redemption accomplished. You know, we live in a world that is desperately seeking justice, and rightfully so, because we're made in God's image. But only Jesus only Jesus, who has the same zeal for justice, could also provide all of the forgiveness that our world so desperately needs. At that moment, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, everything changed forever. The earth quaked. The temple curtain that kept everyone separated away from God in the most holy place was ripped apart. Tombs were broken open, and a veteran Roman soldier knew something amazing had happened, and he was terrified, and he blurted out, surely he was the son of God. I know no better declaration that all of us could make on Good Friday than to say that with that Roman soldier. Surely he was the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's the call to you and me on Good Friday. The call is, is simple, and that's what makes it so amazing. The call is to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just behold. 
That's all you have to do. Just behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and, and this is the Christian life. It's a constant beholding of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not that we did it one time, not that we did it five years ago, but rather we come back and we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that hung on the cross, that when we see the cross, we marvel at what was accomplished on your behalf and on my behalf. The cross is where Satan is defeated. The cross is where salvation comes from. The cross is how sin is defeated. The cross is where you and I are liberated. The cross is how death was put to death. That is what makes Good Friday good. Gaze at this Jesus. Behold this Jesus. This Jesus was rejected so that you might be accepted. This Jesus was stripped naked so that you might be clothed in righteousness. This Jesus went hungry so that you might be fed. This Jesus was despised so that you might be celebrated. This Jesus went blind so that you might see. This Jesus was made lame so that you and I might walk. This Jesus lost his voice so that we may lift ours. This Jesus was spit upon so that we might be spoken to by God. This Jesus was kicked so that we might be carried. This Jesus was wounded so that we might be healed. This Jesus was treated like an enemy so that we might be treated like family. This Jesus was taunted so that we might be encouraged. This Jesus was put to sleep so that we might be made awake. And this Jesus was put to death so that we might live. Um, it's so fitting, isn't it, on Good Friday? Just stop and offer a moment of confession. And we want to take communion as we continue on in our service, but I just thought it would be so fitting for us to pause and have a prayer of confession together. I mean, the cross should evoke in us a sense of repentance, a sense of confession, because none of us come clean to the cross. If there's one great thing about the cross is the ground is completely level. There are no people that are better than others. Every single one of us has already been outed at the cross. So the only thing to do is just repent. So I want to lead us in a prayer of confession, and then we'll set up communion, and we'll continue to worship together. So I, um, I'll read a section of the prayer, and then uh, there will be a response for us to say together. So this is our prayer of confession. O crucified Jesus, Son of the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, eternal Word of God. O crucified Jesus, holy temple of God, dwelling place of the Most High, gate of heaven, burning flame of love. O crucified Jesus, sanctuary of justice and love, full of kindness, source of all faithfulness. O crucified Jesus, ruler of every heart in, you are the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. In you dwells all fullness of the Godhead. Jesus, Lamb of God. Jesus, the one who is the bearer of our sins. 
Jesus, Redeemer of the world. Almighty God, look with mercy on your family for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and to be given over to the hands of sinners and to suffer death on the cross. Through him who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As we continue to worship over the next few minutes, I wanna encourage us just to continue on with the time of confession before we take communion and take Jesus. We should pause in confession. So if there are additional things that you need to confess, there is space tonight. What an incredible sacred opportunity for you to sit and do business with the Lord. And then as uh, you feel led, you'll have the opportunity to come forward and take communion at the stations uh, around the room, but there's no rush. We'll have an extended time of worship. But let's just continue to reflect and pray to God who is compassionate, who is gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in love. You know, on Thursday night before Good Friday was when Jesus gave us the sacrament of communion. It's his last supper. He's gathered with his disciples and he wants them to understand the significance of what's about to happen, but he also wanted to create a new sacrament so that you and I would understand the significance of what is about to happen. A new covenant was being formed. So on that night as Jesus was in that upper room, the Last Supper with his disciples, and before Jesus was handed over for suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it. And as he broke it, he said, give thanks to his disciples. And as he did, he said, take it and eat it. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after he had done that with the bread, he took a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for the many forgivenesses of sin. When you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So friends, communion is also you and me uh, stepping into uh, that long lineage of what played out in that holy week 2,000 years ago. It's just also proclaiming that what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And that's all we need because he truly is the son of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for allowing us to call Good Friday good. In no other situation could you look at such a heinous night, could you look at such a horrendous death and come to some conclusion that something good happened. But yet, God, we know that you specialize in taking the bleakest moments and making them the brightest. That on the cross of Calvary, you took all of our sin 
You took all of our shame. You took all of our punishment. And even if some of us are tempted in this room tonight to say, no, there's got to be a little shame left for me. There's got to be some punishment left for me. I've done more than anyone could ever imagine or more than anyone knows. Just ask, Lord, that they would realize that the blood of Christ is sufficient. And the blood of Christ actually brings us into the light. It means we don't even have to pretend anymore that we've got it all figured out, that we're perfect, that we don't have sin, that we haven't blown it, that we haven't messed up. So Lord, would we confess with our mouths and then with our lives that we've got no hope other than to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Lord, that's what we do. We cast ourselves on Calvary. And there couldn't be a better place to be. Pray that in your name. Amen.